The following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Sacred City. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, If you're just joining us, we are in the second week of a 12-week study through the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a summary of the Bible's teaching on the basics of Christianity. Now, that might not sound very appealing to some of us. Nobody likes to take the 101 classes, right? Nobody likes to study the basics of something. The good stuff is usually in the advanced classes. Well, maybe in physics, but not here in Christianity. As we're going to see today, the real power of our faith, of Christianity, is actually in the basics. And it's really easy to forget that. Today, we profess with 2,000 years worth of Christians, Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox, that I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now that phrase at first glance seems almost benign, doesn't it? It seems like a very safe way to begin a creed. But in reality, when this creed was first used, and actually still today, this statement should sound like a gun going off. Right? We, we, when this statement is read or professed, we could say, ooh, shots fired. This statement immediately gets us and it got our predecessors in trouble with their culture at large and our culture at large. And that's important to note. Christianity, because we believe it's came down from God who is eternal, from God the Father, it's come down to us, Therefore, Christianity should confront and challenge every single culture in the world at certain points. There's some things that we believe as 21st century Americans that need to be confronted and corrected by the word of God. The same was true of those who are living in first century Corinth, and that's where our scripture reading today was, came from 1 Corinthians. That's where it came from. Corinth, if you were around a few years ago, we did a whole sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians, but it, Corinth, the, the book of Corinthians, was a letter written by the apostle Paul to the church that met in Corinth. And Corinth was a city-state on the isthmus of Corinth, the narrow stretch of land that joins the Peloponnese to the mainland of Greece. It's roughly halfway between Athens and Sparta. Now, in the first century, the culture was, like most, polytheistic. And what does that mean? That means they believed in a plethora of different gods, many different gods, and they worshiped all of them. The Greco-Roman culture created, have you ever heard of the, the, Greco, the Greek pantheons? Well, what are pantheons? A pantheon is a temple dedicated to all the gods, right? You go around our city and you've got, you know, different temples and different worship sites and that most of the time you go in there and they worship one god, but not so in the Greco-Roman world. See, in Greco-Roman culture, there were all kinds of gods and goddesses Rick Wardian has brought these gods and goddesses back to life in his Percy Jackson series of youth fiction. Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Demeter, Ares, Athena, Apollo, Hades, and all kind, many more, these Greek gods and goddesses. They were all worshipped in first century Corinth. Think of these gods like 
the Avengers, right? They all had kind of special powers, superpowers, but like the Avengers, they also had flaws, right? Zeus was the god of thunder with his lightning bolt in his hand, and yet he has a terrible weakness for women and infidelity that got him all in all kinds of trouble with the gods and humans alike. <clears throat> all of the Greek gods were like this. They had some great power and they had equally great weaknesses. Now, if you were growing up in this Greco-Roman culture, this is how you thought of the gods and the goddesses. They were greater than you, but they were dangerous. They were capricious. You didn't want to get on the bad side. You never knew when one of them might just freak out and strike you down. <clears throat> and so they would go to these pantheons, these kind of generic temples where you'd go into them and you worshiped all the gods. <clears throat> this is the culture to whom Paul the apostle is writing this epistle to the Corinthians. And he says this, if you want to open up your Bibles to Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we're in the middle of a larger uh, kind of uh, teaching topic from the Apostle Paul, but I want, us to draw our, I want to draw our attention to this right here. He says this, we know that an idol has no real existence. So when you go into a temple and there's an idol to an unknown God or an idol to this God or that God, he says that idol has no real existence. Look, <clears throat> and we know that there is no God but one. Now, he's speaking, this is stuff that can get you killed. In a polytheistic culture, he's saying, yeah, 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 everybody worships a lot of gods and they sacrifice and they eat foods offered to them, but we know there's actually no God but one, keep reading. For although there may be, may be so-called gods, little g, in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, puts it in, in scare quotes there, gods and many lords, yet for us, that's for the Christian, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. Do you see that that is almost, I mean, it's not word for word, but it's really close to the Apostles' Creed. There's one God, the Father, for whom and from whom all things exist. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul says all of those so-called gods, all the pantheon, all the other gods of the culture at large are nothing but idols. They are figments of the human imagination. They have no real substance, no real existence. There is no God but one. Boom, shots fired. Now, what's interesting to me is how similar our current culture is to the one found in first century Corinth. We believe in all kinds of gods and goddesses. Though ours have different names, we laugh at Zeus and we laugh at Apollo and we laugh at all these things. No, we worship the gods of religion found in Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc. We worship the gods of money, power, comfort, and success. We worship the gods of the family, our kids, our spouse, our careers. We even worship the gods of pop culture. From The Rock to Beyonce, we look to them to tell us how to find the good life. We look to them to find meaning and purpose and value in our life. And yet, in our culture, all of this is okay. It's okay to worship whatever you want, to find whatever you want as the ultimate thing in life. Everybody worships something. Everybody has something at the center of who they are. And in our culture, the, the, the dogma of the day is all of it's okay, all of it's promoted and hailed by our culture as long as you say 
that all of these gods stand on equal playing field. All of them are okay. All of them good. They're all equal. It's very Greco-Roman, really. But herein lies our problem. It's into this reality where Christians say, there is no God but one. The first statement of the Apostles' Creed fires a shot at religious pluralism. Now, not religious pluralism as we originally contrived it in this country, that everyone is free to worship how they see fit, and there shouldn't be one nationalistic religion. We're a a pluralistic society where it's okay to worship different religions. That's fine. But the new concept of religious pluralism is that all religions lead to the same path. All religions lead back to God. Christians don't believe that. Christians don't worship other gods. Christians don't say there are other gods when there's only one true God. Well, the first question we should ask, all right, all right. Christians believe there's one God. Now, the question we should ask is, okay, well, who is that? Who is the one true God? Well, this isn't something we find out on our own. It's interesting that the gods that we come up with, they're almost always a little bit better than we are. They're like us, but they're a little bit better. All the Greek gods, very interesting, very fun to study and look into, but they're all human, they're all human-like with a little bit, you know, with some power and some weaknesses. But the God of the universe, the one father and creator of all things, he's actually not like us. And we can't, we don't just come up with this idea of who God is on our own. It has to be revealed to us. So God sent prophets to tell us who this one God is. That's what's written down for us here in the Bible in the Old Testament. But honestly, that revelation wasn't enough. So God sent Jesus to show us what God is like. And Jesus gives us our clearest picture of who the one true God is. God is the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Paul says it like this, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Let's look at the latter part of this statement first. God is the creator or the maker of heaven and earth. Again, this is and was a controversial statement. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, there was a growing movement called Gnosticism that taught basically the spirit or the immaterial part of a human being is good and the, and the material part or creation is bad. Death in this movement was seen as good because in death, you would finally shed yourself from your flesh, your physical body, the part of you that was corrupt and bad, and you would become all good, all spirit, immaterial. But that isn't what Christians believe. So Christians had to confront that belief and say, no, we're not Gnostic. We don't believe that the spirit is good and the flesh is bad. God is the maker of both heaven and earth. He made the things we see and the things we don't see. Our bodies are good. The earth is good. Food is good. Pleasure is good. But so is our spirit. So is our soul. So is heaven. So are the things that we can't see. Now, again, I find it interesting how similar our culture is to the Gnostics. See, we've created science and the scientific method to discover what is, right? To to search out creation, the things that we can see. 
Science deals with everything physical that exists. We study creation to learn more about it. And of course, science is good. But the scientific method cannot, by definition, be used on the heavens, be used on the spirit, be used on the soul to measure things that you can't see in the physical world. But here's what many in our culture and even most of our universities are trying to do. Since you cannot study the immaterial with the scientific method, we've concluded, therefore, the immaterial doesn't exist. What? That's like the drunk who is looking for his lost keys under the street light because that's the only place where the light is good enough to look. Where are your keys? Well, I don't really know. Well, why are you looking right here? Because I can see right here. Okay. See, science is good. It's a gift, but it's not God. Scientism believes that science is God. Science or the scientific method is all that there is. Well, if that's the case, here's the problem. If that's the case, most of our experience of the world is not real. Because science can't tell us why or can it measure beauty. If science is all there is and the scientific method studies everything that is, then beauty doesn't exist. Love doesn't exist. Meaning doesn't exist. Morality doesn't exist. And in scientism, human beings become nothing more than slightly more evolved apes. We literally lose our created glory where the scriptures tell us we're made in the image of God, that we have an immaterial part of us, our soul, that's going to live forever. And there's something unique about humans that they can do, they can make art, they can make music, that they they can love people, that they can do good things, that there is morality and truth, that these things really exist. And there's something special about human beings over and above all the rest of creation. If there is no maker of heaven and earth, then we lose all of that. And none of us go to Hallmark on Valentine's Day and we pick out the card that says, I had some you know, hormones that went off one day and there's some things going off in my mind and it really convinces me that I love you and I wanted to procreate with you. <laughs> right? I just wanted to continue my, the DNA inside me wanted to multiply. And so you look like a good place to do that. <laughs> right? That is not our reality. But if you go and you sit in biology class in a university, right, a one-on-one, that's what they're going to tell you. Or even psychology sometimes, that's what they're going to tell you. Love is just some neurons firing in your brain, just some chemicals going off. That denies our reality. That denies our humanity. That denies our experience that there's something about love that's deeper than chemical, chemicals going on and off, right? So as Christians, we believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. He is God of the physical world and he is God of the spiritual world and they are both good in his his kingdom. Now, that's who God is. But the next question we have or we should ask is, okay, if that's who God is, good, but what is God like? What's he like? And the creed answers for us the same way the scriptures do, God, and the same way Jesus taught us, God primarily is like a father. Now, immediately, we've got a problem. All of us have some measure of a father wound 
A father wound is some scar upon our soul from our earthly father. See, here's what I know about your dad. He had weaknesses. He had faults. He had flaws. He had besetting sins that caused him to be a worse father than he would have wished to be. And some fathers are way worse than others. There's genuine, horrible fathers, horrible men. And when we grow up in their homes, we are damaged by them. Our soul is wounded by them. And the reality is, your experience with your own father is going to affect the way you relate to God as your heavenly father. Listen, if your father was never home and he was a workaholic, it is likely that you will feel the need to work really hard to earn your father's attention or affection. God's not really interested in me unless I'm putting in the hours. If your father was distant and emotionally unavailable, it is likely that you relate to God as distant and unemotionally, emotionally unavailable as well. Now, if you had the, the blessing of having the perfect father and all he ever did was dote on you and told you how perfect you were, it is likely even that experience has had a negative impact on you because if any time God corrects you or God confronts you or God disciplines you, you feel him to be harsh and cruel, nitpicking. You find it almost impossible to listen to any criticism or correction of your character or behavior. There's a famous movie with Brad Pitt called Fight Club. And in it, these men are kind of rejecting the, their absence fathers. They're rejecting their wounds of their fathers. And they said, he says, if our fathers are our models for God, what does that tell you about God? And I would speak and say, well, no, 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 no. Your equation is wrong. Our fathers don't tell us anything about God. God is meant to teach us, teach our fathers how to be fathers. You don't look at your experience with your father and then take that experience and push it up to God. God is not like your earthly father. God is the Father Almighty, where us men are meant to learn how to be good fathers from our heavenly father. It doesn't work. It's not meant to work the opposite way, but that's our created experience is that many times our experience of our earthly father, we project up to God. Now, it's interesting. When we think of God as our father, there's this generic way we can think of it. Like he's, he's just the creator of all things. So he's, he's ev all the, you know, all the children's of the, the world. He's everybody's father. And the, and the Bible only speaks of God in that generic sense of father a couple times, mostly in, in the book of Isaiah. When God is called our father, it's speaking of a special relationship. He's first called the father of Israel, where God literally says, these are going to be my people and I am going to be their God and not the other nations of the world. I'm going to have a special relationship with this one group of people from Abraham, right? And I'm gonna create this relationship. Now listen, this is what's interesting. When God does this, listen how he speaks about his children, the nation of Israel. We're gonna go to Hosea chapter 11, verses one through four. If we got it up here, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> when Israel, that's the nation, was a child, or, or was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, Egyptian slavery, I called 
my son. Listen, this is the God, creator of all things. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse two, look at their response. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals. That's another God. And burning offerings, giving offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Think of a father, right? You got your baby. It's one of the best experiences ever. Teaching him how to walk, teaching him how to ride her bike. You just watch that child get up there and that ginormous head just... You're like, is it going to go or are they going to stay upright? And then they just tip that head forward and that causes them to stir, <laughs> right? He's like, I taught them how to do that. I adopted them. I brought them in. I loved them. I called them. I watched as they learned how to stand on their own two feet and walk. I took them up by their arms. They did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them, and I fed them. God here speaking about how he brought them out of slavery, how he took care of them in the wilderness, how he watched over them and he protected them and he fed them and he gave them everything they needed. And yet what did they do? They shook their hands at him and they said, he's cruel. You bring us out here, Moses, to die in the wilderness. What's going on? I remember the meat pots back in Egypt. Their experience of God as father wasn't in line with reality what God was doing as a loving father. And parents, you know this. It's the most painful aspect, one of the most painful of being a parent is our, when we're loving our children, they don't always experience it as love. And they can, off, they can ask crazy things, right? If you love me, you take me to Whitey's right now. <laughs> if you love me, you do. You're just looking at them like, you don't, you don't get to do that whenever you feel like some, saying that. See, here in this text, we hear what God's relationship with his adopted children, the special relationship. God loved them. God healed them. God led them with kindness and love. God eased their burdens and took care of them. And yet in the midst of his fatherly love, his people still rejected him. God's chosen people didn't want an almighty father. So they rejected him. So what does the father do? Now, this is where we learn how different Christian, Christian's God is to the gods of the nations. He doesn't just get angry. He doesn't send lightning bolts. He doesn't just wipe them off the face of the earth. He doesn't do some crazy thing that all the Greek gods would do. No, 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 no. What does God do? He takes it one step further. He humbled himself by adopting this rebellious people and leading them and washing them and healing them. And then he does the unthinkable. He sends the son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth. You notice the Trinitarian nature of the creed. Christians believe in one God who exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal. The Father cannot be a father without a son. So the Father has eternally had a son. The Son is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And this is what happens. This whole heaven and earth, this whole eternal and temporal and, and soul and spirit, this whole crazy thing, Jesus, the spiritual Son of God, leaves heaven the spiritual place, and comes to earth and puts on flesh. The theological term for this is incarnation. He puts on flesh, moves into the neighborhood, and becomes one of us. The eternal becomes some kind of temporal body like we have. 
with a nature like ours. This is why Christmas is such a big deal. We celebrate the spiritual becoming the physical, the son becoming man in the flesh of Jesus. And over and over and over in the gospels, as we follow the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, Jesus reveals to us that God is primarily a father. Jesus tells us to pray to our our heavenly father. Jesus shows us that the heavenly father knows us by name, knows how many hairs we have on our head. He promises to take care of us and meet all of our needs so that we don't have to worry. Christian, the fatherhood of God is meant to settle your soul and drive out anxiety. I have a father who loves me, who leads me, who takes care of me, who's almighty, who can do all things. He can do everything. What do I have to worry about? Jesus shows us this. Matthew 6, over and over and over and over. Seek first the kingdom of God. And and all these things, all the things that we worry about will be added unto you. That we don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious. All of that comes from knowing God as Father. But the question is, like, have you experienced God as Father? Do you know God as your father? Is God your father? Not in the creator sense, that all God's children type of thing, but in a personal sense. Could you read that from Hosea and say, you know what? That's true of me too. God's called me. God's healed me. God's pursued me. God's loved me. God's been a father to me. See, the greatest truth of all is that Jesus, the Son of God, came and put on flesh and then gets treated not like a son, gets treated like a slave, gets treated like an enemy of God. Many people think that the highest peak of Christianity is the forgiveness of sins. It's not. Forgiveness is great. We're going to talk about it in the creed. But the highest privilege of the gospel is that because of Jesus, we can be adopted into the family of God and has God as our father. We can be re-fathered by a perfect heavenly father. Listen to this quote from J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. How much do you make of being a child of God? How often do you think about the fatherhood of God? The Apostle Paul said it like this in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons or daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, look, to fall back into fear. Pause. 
This is the, the Greek way of thinking about your relationship to the gods. Humans were slaves to the gods, right? We had to do whatever they asked. If we didn't do it, the crops would be ruined, whatever, right? And he's saying this, there is a natural proclivity of the human being to relate to God, maybe as almighty, maybe as, you know, up there, God, however he is, but we relate to him in a slavish mentality. We relate to him as a slave master and we're their slaves. And Paul says, pause, that's not what happened when you put your trust in Jesus Christ and God the Father and God the Son sent the Holy Spirit into you. He didn't send the spirit of slavery to you. He sent a different spirit and this spirit is what? But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, that word Abba, it's hard to describe. Many people say it's like daddy. It's like saying daddy, but it's more, a little bit more respectful than that. But what it's meant to show us is there's an intimacy there. There's an intimacy with God. See, if any of you show up on my house at 2 a.m., I ain't coming to the door. If I do, I'll have a weapon. Okay, you don't have, I love you all. Well, most of you. you. You don't have the right to show up at my house at 2 a.m. And yet my children will come up into my bed and push me over. I had a bad dream. My children will come up. I, I'm a little thirsty. At 2 a.m. See, my children have a right just from being my children. There's an intimacy there. My son, I don't know why he thinks it's funny, but for the past year he's been calling me Abba. Right? <laughs> I think it's because he gets more V-Bucks on Fortnite if he does that, I think. I'm a little more generous when he calls me Abba. No. My children, by relationship, there's an intimacy there. I heard Tim Keller once say one time, no one wakes a king up at 2 a.m. for a glass of water except his children. That's the kind of access we have through adoption. We've been adopted into the family of God because Jesus performed perfectly on our behalf, pleased the Father. He died the death that we deserve because of our many sins. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He offers this up to us by faith. And now when we receive it, we receive the spirit of adoption that can say, Dad, Abba, Daddy. There's an intimacy there because of what Jesus has done for us that has nothing to do. I, when my kids push me over in the middle of the night, I don't go, you were a little punk today. You remember that huge mess you made on the kitchen table? Not tonight. Find another bed. Right? Find another one. Call coach tonight. You like coach so much, call coach at 2 a.m. No, 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 no. When you get woken up at 2 a.m., you don't think about how good has my child been? Have they deserved this kind of access? No, no, no. You grant them access because you love them because they're your children. The same is true with us, but we get access because of Jesus. Perfect access. Now, in this text, Paul says, Christians are made children of God through the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But the reality is many of us, for whatever reason, because of the way we project upon God from our own father wounds, or lack of knowledge, lack of understanding, lack of experience. Many Christians, and I might even say most Christians, aren't experiencing God as their Abba Father. They don't experience him as loving, caring, connected, providing, relating, protecting. They don't, they don't experience him like a dad like that. I think many of us live more like slaves than sons or daughters. 
Remember last week, we learned that faith or belief isn't just mental assent. It isn't just what we know to be true. It's meant to be trust. And the analogy I've already given, if my son knows that I'm loving, knows that I'm kind, and yet in the 2 a.m., he stands outside the door and he's like, I don't know if I should go in. I don't know if I can go in. I, I don't know if I have that access. Then he doesn't really believe it. Almost all Christians would say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and yet the way they relate to God is more like a slave master than a father. Well, what does that look like? Well, we often in our missional communities go through a curriculum that we call the gospel-centered life. And in the gospel-centered life, there's some questions and answers and some different things that, that, that kind of contrast um, our life as sons and daughters versus our life as a slave or how we relate to God as a slave. And let's, look, let's take a look at these. I've got a couple of them I put up on the screen. Are you a slave or a son or daughter? This is slaves. Slave lack, slaves lack a vital, means living. There's blood pumping through it. Daily intimacy with God. Slaves often feel spiritually discouraged and defeated. Slaves tend to be motivated by obligation and duty, not love. The first thing that comes to their mind is, oh, I have to do that, or I should do that, not what has God already done for me and he's created me and he's changed me and he's moved me in such a way that now I get to do this thing. Slaves, frequently compare yourself with others. Why? Because your relationship with a God is based on how well you're doing. So you're looking around measuring, how are you doing compared to that guy or that girl or, or that person? Because you need a little bit of the Father's attention and the only way to get attention is to outwork and outperform the people around you. Slaves lack confidence in approaching God in prayer or worship. They can't do what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us, come boldly to the throne of grace. Slaves avoid it. Slaves feel powerless to defeat the flesh. So they feel like we're, they're just kind of like a sail and wherever the wind of their desires blows them, they have no ability to say no to their inner desires. Now let's contrast this with a child of God. Children of God enjoy real or vital daily communion with God. Now, it does not mean that they sit down in their quiet time and the heavens open and doves fall down and the Holy Spirit directs their hands to the one scripture that they needed for exactly that day and he even, he even Instagrams it for them and all they do is hit send, okay? No, sometimes it's dry, sometimes it's, you know, you don't get anything out of it, but most of the time or many times you feel a real connection with God as you read and study scripture and as you pray. Children, Live in forgiveness and freedom. What does that mean? They don't have any illusions of perfection. They don't have any illusions. They're not surprised by their own sinfulness. They sin often and they confess that sin and they ask for forgiveness and they receive that forgiveness from the Father and they enjoy the freedom they have in Christ. They're not always just bent on being perfect. Children experience contentment and happiness, joyfulness in Christ. They enjoy God. They enjoy the station of life that they're in. They can genuinely enjoy him. Children have the ability to confess their faults and admit their weaknesses. Yep, I screwed up. Yep. I failed. Now, why, why do they do that? Because their righteousness is not found in their own obedience and their own behavior. Their righteousness is found in Christ. 
so they can freely confess those things. I screwed up. I yelled when I shouldn't have yelled. I disobeyed. I did whatever. I'm a child. It doesn't change my, doesn't change my relationship with the Father at all because Jesus has the reason I'm in the family. They manifest a deep reliance on the Holy Spirit. They're not tempted to just get out there and perform and do it on their own. They're dependent on the Spirit. And they have growing victory over sin in the flesh. We do, again, we do not believe in Christian perfectionism, but we do believe as we grow and as we mature, we're going to have some victories. There's some things when we look back, we can say, well, I'm not where I want to be right now, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. I've gotten my, my anger has gotten under control. My anxiety has gotten under control more than it used to be. But the spirit is helping me grow and mature in sanctification. Now, we read these examples and you, if, you, if, you, if you take inventory of your own soul, do you, are you living out of the experience of a son or a daughter or are you primarily living out of the experience of a slave? Now, what if we do if we see in ourselves the characteristics of a slave? Well, first, we, we, just, we own it. Listen, I speak to people all the time. They've been Christians for 20 years and yet the way they relate to God is more like a slave than a son. Their experience with their own earthly father overwhelms them and they just always feel the same way they do in the presence of their own earthly father. So what do you do? First thing, you own it, you confess it, and you just repent of it. You say, Father, I repent for projecting the failures of my earthly father on you. In a lot of ways, you're nothing like him. You're almighty and you're good and you're gracious and you're kind and you don't nitpick me all the time and you don't judge me all the time and you don't, you're not distant from me or all, go down the list. I confess these things and I want to turn from them and I want to repent. I want to know you. Profess this, say this to God, that you, the God that you have access to because of Jesus. I want to know you as a loving, almighty Father. I want to know you as Abba. Help me relate to you as a son or a daughter. Second, so that's the first thing you do. Second thing you do, you, you need to get involved in a Christian community. You need to get involved in a missional community where other you're, now you have brothers and sisters that can remind you of who God is and what he's like. They can see when you're living like a slave. They can see the fruit of slavish living rather than the son or the daughter and they can point it out and say, hey, hey, hey are you forgetting the truth of the gospel, the core truth that God is your father and you have access to him right now and you don't have to suffer alone? We all need each other. And third, come to this gathering week in and week out to be reminded of who God is and what he's done, to hear the gospel, to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us, and then to come to this table that the Father has prepared for you where we feast on not just bread and wine, we feast on the sacrificed body and blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That that's how far the father went to adopt you into his family. What's he gonna do? He's already killed his son. He's already paid the price. Nothing you can do can cause you to get kicked out of this family. He's paid the ultimate price. And every day or every Sunday, you come together and you eat it and you, rem you remember that. This is how far the Father has gone for me. Now, there's no other gods, quote unquote, in all the world who's done this. And we need to be reminded because we are forgetful people. We are very forgetful people. Now listen, you may be, maybe you're here this morning and you're just checking us out and you're trying to figure this thing out and you've never heard this and you've never believed this. Listen, if you're here and you haven't believed and you haven't been baptized, we don't 
We ask you not to come to the table. Instead of coming to the table here, we ask you to feast on Christ by faith and just say, Jesus, you did that for me. I believe. Help my unbelief. And the Father says, when we do that, we get adopted. He calls us sons and daughters. He brings us into the family. But for the Christian this morning, we come and we eat and we remember and we proclaim the Lord's death, that this is what it took to adopt us. This is what it took to bring us in. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this foundational truth of the Christian faith. This is our good news. Not just that we can be forgiven of our sins, but we can be adopted into the family of God and we can have literally a new father and a new family to heal the wounds from from our fathers. So I ask that you would do that today. I don't take this lightly. Many people in this room have had abusive fathers, have had distant fathers, have had broken fathers, have had absent fathers. Many have never known their father. And we, it's a generic truth that we know that this has affected us, this has hurt us, this has wounded us, but we can't just bury it in the sand. We can't just put our head down and just forget about it because it's affecting the way we live our life today. And I ask through the grace of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, you would reparent us now. Heal the deep wounds that we have. Let us feel the gracious one-way love of the Father that's not based on any of our performance, not based on our sports ability or our school ability or our career attainment or who we've married or what house we live in or what neighborhood. You're not pleased with us because of any of those things. You're pleased with us because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. And I pray that that would give us a freedom to be who we are to be vulnerable and open and weak like we've never been before. All for your glory and our good. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.